0: plushcare.com slash weight loss.
1: Hey, hey, welcome to Page Break. I'm your host, Brian McClellan, coming to you on a bird chirping spring morning in the mountains of Utah. My guest this week is fantasy author Samantha Shannon. Samantha's career began at the age of 21 when she published the internationally best-selling The Bone Season with Bloomsbury Publishing. There have been three more books in that series, as well as Samantha's acclaimed standalone The Priory of the Orange Tree. We talk about authorial input into behind-the-scenes decisions, our unhealthy addictions, book length and complexity, and being thrust in front of crowds as introverts. We also chat about Samantha's relationship with the media attention around her debut novel and the pressure that comes with being a young success. Enjoy my conversation with Samantha Shannon. So I, I was kind of curious, uh, because I had this come up this morning. Does your publisher ask for your input on things a lot on like on back end things like cover copy and your you know cover art and your audiobook reader and things like that um yeah they
2: do so i i was involved in the process of the cover for pretty much all of my books i mean sometimes it's out of my control so for my bone season series um there was a cover change uh, halfway through the series where they switched from these kind of colorful designs to a more minimalist with a white background. And I was quite against that because I know that a lot of readers really don't like mid-series cover changes because it doesn't look great on your bookshelf. Um, but <laughs> I, was, I, was o- I was overruled, unfortunately, on that front. Um, later, my publisher ended up changing it back, actually, but that's a whole other story. Um, but yeah, I normally do get asked for input. So I was I was shown the different stages of designing the beautiful cover for the Priory of the Orange Tree. Um, they showed me the illustrator they were going to use. Um, I was asked about the audiobook narrator. Yes, I was given a choice of three different narrators that they thought would suit. And I chose uh, the one I liked for both of my books, actually. Uh, so yeah, I do. I I feel like I do get quite a lot of input actually. Thinking about it, uh,
1: so I, I guess I'm curious about uh, how other authors feel about this because I do you like having the input? It's a
2: difficult question, isn't it? Because it's um it's pressure. Because then it feels <laughs> like if something goes wrong, it's potentially your fault. But then yeah. I do. Then I do feel strongly, though, that I like my books to be presented a certain way. And I would feel very unhappy if my publisher had designed a cover I didn't like and then I couldn't give any sort of feedback about that. So it is a bit of a double edged sword, but I like having a a degree. I like being involved in the process. It's similar to when, you know, when I've worked with people on adapting my books. I haven't had any of my books like fully adapted to film or TV yet, but I have worked with different teams in the process of doing that. And generally, what I've said is, you know, I'm here if anyone wants to consult me and I will give you as much information as you need. But I also don't want to be in full control of the process because I'm not a film or TV person. And similarly, I'm not a cover design person. I'm not a marketing expert. So I know that I have to leave it in other people's hands to some extent.
1: Yeah, I I, I bounce back and forth between that whole loving to have like my the like, kind of not ultimate control when you're working with traditional publishing you never have ultimate control but like having some measure of control versus like sometimes like i'll get an email on like a bad morning and it'll be like oh shoot me over some cover copy for the next book and somewhere in my brain goes isn't that your job I've i've got stuff to write
2: yeah, no, I see what you mean. It's it is difficult sometimes. Like I normally with with the copy, I normally send them a rough draft, and then we pass it back and forth. But yeah, that's that's interesting. Do you get much say over your covers? Do you send them like a, an idea of what you want? Or?
1: Oh yeah, I get. Um, I've I've worked. i mean I, like having much say. You know, like I said, it's kind of like a. You know, you, you never know how much they're listening to you, right? Mm. Like, um, but I, I've worked with my uh, with my editor now for. Gosh! Um, for the first four Powder Mage books, and then my new series that's going to be coming out from Tor, and and sh- and we have a great working relationship, uh, and she's always been really cool about coming to me and saying, "Okay, what are your ideas, thoughts, and things like that?" And I and I do like that with the cover stuff, especially. Like I like having being able to at least say my piece, and then having them say, you know, like, "Oh, I don't think that'll work," or "Here's the reasons why we want to do something different." but uh it's it is a weird thing where where i kind of want to be involved but also i'm very conscious of the fact i'm not a professional in those fields
2: yeah exactly i feel the same
1: yeah like so like i i guess this morning i got an email the first email i got when i woke up was hey i'm your audiobook producer for the next book uh what are your thoughts on audio and that's one like such a big question right it's such a big question
2: (laughs) what are your thoughts on audio in general
1: (laughs) yeah And I I kind of like, and my brain just kind of like, goes, oh, man, like, because I I have some understanding of art concepts, you know, but like, when it comes to audio, like, I I got nothing at all. And, and so, you know, spend the first two hours of my day kind of, you know, listening to samples and asking Twitter, you know, like, who are your favorite epic fantasy audio readers? Like, I don't, this is a field I actually don't have any knowledge in. And if I want to give any input at all, I have to like brush up on it.
2: Yeah, that is something I really miss about not being on Twitter anymore. Like it was the place I would go with questions like these. Like it would be, you know, it's very useful for even like for research questions, just asking Twitter. Somebody always knows the answer. Somebody always has a great response.
1: Yeah, it's always funny when you ask a random question that you're like, oh, there's no way anybody's going to answer this. And some random person pops up and's like, oh, actually, I work in this field and I can give you a really detailed explanation.
2: Exactly. It's just your always only a small number of degrees of separation from somebody who knows the answer
1: yeah i really love that so i uh, i did see that you had kind of kicked your twitter mm-hmm. and i i man i have so much respect for that it's
2: thanks <laughs>
1: uh, i i i hate it so much and yet i still love it so much
2: I was in that boat as well. And i if you look back on some of my Twitter history, I had attempted to quit Twitter several times, always just, it was so funny because every time I'd be like, yeah, yeah, okay, I'm going to leave Twitter for a month. And then within a week, I'd be back like, oh, sorry, I'm actually actually—I'm actually not leaving for a month. I'm too weak. Um, but now I do genuinely really miss Twitter a lot of the time, but it was taking up so much of my headspace. And I realized just every single time I would log on to Twitter, I would be, there was about, I'd always see about 12 things straight. Away that would make me absolutely incandescent with anger, and there was it's always things that. I couldn't actually really do anything about. And so I would start the day feeling really angry. And often I would want to, you know, I would just tweet about things that I didn't really need to be tweeting about or offering my opinion on, but you just get sucked into it. And I think it really, it sort of rewards that kind of engagement, I think, Twitter. And I was just constantly in a state of kind of nervous anger all the time. And I I hadn't realized quite how bad it had gotten until, gosh, when did I quit Twitter? I think it was April last year. And I just realized I was, it had just overwhelmed me and I do I do really miss a lot of things about it like I met a lot of my best friends there I learned a lot of things there I don't think I would be the person I am without Twitter but now I'm off it I'm just like wow I have so much more time and time seems to be passing so much slower now I'm not logging in and you know scrolling hours away and it's just yeah it's incredible how much more time I feel like I have well and
1: there's that that um, I feel like it does suck a small amount of creative energy out of me. Oh, yeah. It just, there's there's that feeling of of, you know, kind of that emotional sort of state that, yeah, you know, we always, everybody has that one friend that you absolutely adore, but they also post every single... You know, they, they post about every single horrible thing happening in the world. And you're just like, man, I, I, I can't physically engage with that.
2: Yeah, it's difficult because you, you want to engage with so much of it and you care about so much of it. But I don't think our brains as human beings are designed to cope with so much information. You know, with with Twitter, there are no boundaries whatsoever between you and the entire world. And that that's it's very difficult to process so much without just becoming overwhelmed by it. So yeah, for me, I just thought it was better to just take a step back. I mean, there's a whole variety of reasons I stepped back from it, just, you know, time, mental health, just a lot of different things. But yeah, I just, I just ultimately feel that it is overwhelming. And that's the main reason I had to leave.
1: Yeah. I mean, I guess, man is, is the next step of human evolution kind of actually learning how to deal with global connectedness because we certainly aren't doing it well right now.
2: No, I don't. It's, it, it is difficult. And I think, I think people just do forget that our brains are not, yeah, like I said, the brain is not really designed to function like this. And there's so many other things as well. Like when you're talking to people on Twitter you're not seeing the whole person like it's just a picture of someone and text so there's so many there's so many languages that we all speak to each other when we're talking so it's not just the language of the words we're using it's also the language of tone and facial expression and a whole bunch of different things that are very different in real life conversations versus how we speak on the internet. And I think that does kind of limit our capacity for empathy. It makes it easier to be angry and lash out at people. And I I do I did think about that a lot because when I withdrew from Twitter... I was mostly. It, 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 I think this is part of why I would do as well because I couldn't. I couldn't see people in real life because of the pandemic. So yeah. it was like I was over. Because I live on my own, I think I was over relying on Twitter for human contact. But it's not sort of normalized human contact. It is just seeing words on a screen, and that when you meet people in real life, it's it's very different. So I think I'd almost overexposed myself to Twitter during the pandemic, and it was really helpful for me because. Like I said, I wasn't really seeing anyone at all during that period of like very intense lockdown, and it was helpful to have that connection through Twitter. But then it just, yeah, I just think it made me less empathetic towards people as well. It's strange. It's 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 a remarkable source of connection while also damaging the ways we connect to each other. I think.
1: Yeah, uh, it's interesting. You mentioned the kind of over reliance idea. I, I I looking back, I can totally see that because uh, my wife and I, Michelle and I, spent gosh. 14 or 16 months straight literally not leaving the house. Mm. You know, I I have a, a kind of a Debilitating kind of physical illness, and she's got Mm -hmm. a very severe mental illness. And between the two of us, we kind of looked at each other and went, Okay, we're not engaging with COVID at all. We're going to get everything delivered. You know, we're just going to hunker down. And then we just kept hunkering down and kept hunkering down. And there was a point at which I felt like I was depending so much on, you know, a couple of private Slacks I have with friends and with Twitter. And, Mm -hmm. you know, even though I don't even use Facebook much. I still scroll it, you know, like, oh, I hate that.
2: Yeah, it is. It is difficult. And that is a wonderful thing about Twitter. I mean, as someone, I also have a chronic illness and I I think it is wonderful that people can use it for connection in that sense. But yeah, for me, I just felt like I had, I had become too exposed to it to the point that I had forgotten almost how to interact with people not in the Twitter sphere. It was, it's a very, it's a very complicated issue for me in my head, but I, I had this kind of intervention with myself. And I remember after I quit and I think I mentioned on Instagram that I'd been off it for a little while and somebody said to me, like, you know, there's a season for all things. And I think my Twitter season is kind of done. And somebody else also said that, you know, they couldn't remember the last time they'd logged on to Twitter and felt happier than before they logged on and I thought that was really interesting because I felt the same and sometimes I'll go I would go on Twitter and see some hilarious joke somebody had done or something like that and it'd be amazing and it would really cheer me up but it did get to a point where I felt those moments were being overwhelmed by things that were making me angry and unhappy so I had to really reckon with you know is is this benefiting you anymore so yeah I have definitely felt it's lost deeply but I also don't think I'll be I'll be going back
1: that seems like such a good call (laughs) (laughs)
2: <laughs> yeah, and it, it is—it's hard. I mean, I—I I gave up alcohol in 2013, and I found that easier than giving up Twitter. I'm—I com- went completely teetotal, and I—with Twitter, it was like it took me probably three months, I think, for me to not feel like I was shaking when I was like trying to resist the urge to check it. <laughs> it was—it's was, honestly, uh, I couldn't believe how much easier it was to give up alcohol.
1: <laughs> I—I've tried quitting sugar uh, <laughs> several times over the last couple of years, and. It's just, oh man, I hate that like feeling of like, oh, you know, it's really not that bad for me, I'm sure, in moderate amounts. And then you have a little bit, and then you find yourself at, you know, midnight scarfing down chocolate chips.
2: Yeah, exactly. That's And that is why I had to go so extreme with Twitter because, you know, I'd be like, oh, I'll just check it for five minutes. And then next thing you know, I've been on there for five hours and I've had an argument with a misogynist and it's uh-huh. just generally, it's just generally, you know, it, it just wasn't going well for me. So I had, I had a, a, a t- I had 10 years on there. I think I was on there from 2010 to 2020, roughly. So I think the decade I spent on there, I don't regret it, but I, yeah, I think it's time to move on to a new season, the season yeah. of in- Instagram, <laughs>
1: <laughs> which right.
2: probably isn't much better in some ways, but I'm, I'm finding it a bit easier to, to handle mentally.
1: Yeah. You know, Instagram is weird because it's, you know, it's part of that same ecosystem because it, but it, mm. but it also, it's so much simpler and it feels so much, I don't know, more positive to me. Like, you know, it's yeah. pictures of books and cats and things like that. And you don't have to read the comments and, you know, all that.
2: Yeah. And I think it, it, it's similar to Facebook. And I think it can almost be slightly toxically positive to the point that you, you're you're just seeing the best of people's lives all the time. And I think if your life isn't going so well, that can make you feel a little bit down when you look at Instagram. Um, but at the same time, I, I, I think it is generally a, a nice positive place and I can, I can deal with it. And also there's less of a chance. I think the algorithm just doesn't reward um, um, certain types of engagement in the way that Twitter does it, you know, there's not, you know, quote, what is it quote retweets and that kind of thing. Like you can't spread things in the same way on Instagram that you can on Twitter. It's just, it's just a very different setup, I think.
1: Yeah. I mean, we're all going to, I mean, it's the internet. We're all going to want to engage with it in some way. Mm. And I mean, the, the more of the toxicity that we can cut out of that, the better. I guess.
2: Yeah. And like I said, I, I really don't want to seem like I'm ragging too hard on Twitter or any of the others because there are so many positive things about them. It was just, I think it's just a very personal decision and it was just something I felt like I needed to do for my mental wellbeing at that point.
1: Oh no no that's totally all right. Me and uh, Mallory O'Meara spent uh gosh a half hour on this podcast ragging on Twitter. So um, yeah, it's, <laughs> I'm glad it's not just me. <laughs> it's it's a lot of authors.
2: <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah, it's interesting because I, I I think like I said I went off it last year, but I had heard of a few other people leaving as well. So I guess maybe there was a. I have seen other people saying that they were reassessing their relationship with social media during the pandemic. So I, I guess it set people on the same sort of train of thought.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. So I, I was I was kind of curious because I'm I'm always interested in authors that find success younger. Because I, I kind of consider myself a little bit in this group. My I sold my first book at 25, and I think it came out when I was 27. Um, so you know, a pretty pretty decently, you know, starting your career in your mid 20s kind of thing. Uh, but you started your career super early. Was it you were 21? I did.
2: I was 21 when it was published. Um, I wrote my debut when I was 19. I got my first book deal when I was 20, which was for the first Oof. three books. And then it was published when I was when I was 21 because I asked if Bloomsbury could hold off until after I'd finished my degree because I was still at university at the time.
1: Yeah. That's, that's absolutely wild to me. That's so, especially doing it while you were at the university. Like that's just, man, do you feel like that I mean, obviously, it had to have changed your life, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. What was going through your head in this moment of being still pretty much a kid and then suddenly bam massive success
2: it was madness i mean i had i'd written a book before that called aurora which i was working on from when i was about 15 to when i was about 18 and i tried to get it published and it got rejected by every single agent um and then i wrote the bone season um i I just suddenly had this idea and i wrote it in this sort of feverish six months while i was i would do my university work in the day and then i would do my writing in the evening And um, it was just, yeah, it just kind of rushed out of me. And I was really lucky that we had the Scottish author, Ali Smith. Um, She was a visiting professor at my college at Oxford. And she was offering to look at students' writing and give feedback on it. And she had this reputation of being really harsh. So I was absolutely petrified. But I packed up the first chapter of The seas and I printed it off and I sent it to her. And I was fully expecting her to completely destroy it. (laughs) And um, so I went to see her um, in my tutor's office and I had my little notebook with me and I was all ready to take my feedback. Um, and she said, I think this is really good. I think you should try to get it published. I was like, oh, really? Okay. Um, so I, I yeah, I've I sent it to... Um, the summer beforehand, I had done an internship with a literary agent because if I, if I couldn't be an author, I wanted to work in publishing in some way. And I sent the bone season to him and he didn't generally do fantasy. So I just said to him, I just, I just wondered if you knew any agents who might like this. And he said, Oh, yeah, let me have a look at it and I'll, I'll pass it on to someone. Um, just recommend you an, an agent who might like it. And he ended up liking it. And the next thing he, I knew, he called me to offer me representation. And I was like, okay so it was all happening so quickly and it was compared to the last time I tried to publish a book which it went incredibly slowly and it was just a really demoralizing process um yeah it was suddenly all happening so quickly and then so I signed up with the agent and then next thing I knew I was going to see publishers and I was at Bloomsbury Publishing and they had this you know stunning office in central London with this beautiful chandelier and it was just like walking into a fairy tale and I had the whole team around me saying how much they love my writing and it was just the whole thing it was just so surreal I felt like I was in a dream the entire time um so yeah it was it was incredible it was it it preceded a very interesting year of my life which was the year before my debut came out and that was fascinating because because I was so young I was clearly a point of interest to the media and they gave me this this sort of I think it was the Sunday Times I think that first reported on it and they gave me this moniker the next J K Rowling and they only said it in the way that you know we're both you know British authors and my my series was going to be seven books now it, it was just in the way that you would compare like a, a young footballer to David Beckham you know it wasn't a yeah yeah it was just that kind of thing a, an aspiring actor is I don't know the next George Clooney or whoever. So but somehow this was taken extremely seriously and next thing I knew I was all over the place. I was on Australian, you know, morning TV and my name was in all the in all the papers and it was I'd, I didn't realize at the time that this wasn't really that normal, but it was massively overwhelming to me. I mean, I was this incredibly shy young woman who'd only just gotten her braces taken off. I was like this terrified, <laughs> this terrified like socially anxious teenager. And yeah, suddenly it was it was just all over the place. And I had this fascinating and terrifying and wonderful year where I was just doing all this stuff I could never have imagined myself doing on, on you know, TV in all different countries. And yeah, it was it was just a very it was just a mad year.
1: Hello, PageBreak listeners. Brian here to let you know that my next epic fantasy, In the Shadow of Lightning, is now up for pre-order from Tor Books. Class Immortals is a whole new universe that introduces you to assassinations, intrigue, industrial magic, harrowing battles, heartbreaking disasters, and more for new readers and old. The book is out in the U.S. on June 21st and can be pre-ordered from Amazon, Audible, Barnes & Noble, or get a signed copy straight from my website. Remember, pre-orders matter massively to a new book, so make sure you get that done. Thank you all so much for the support. Now enjoy the rest of the podcast. Uh, my first year, when I started going to conventions, there was a moment at which I was with Brandon Sanderson, who had been my teacher and who was uh, very supportive of me and everything. Mm. and And we, I had done a panel with him, and we were just kind of walking out in the hall. and He turns to me and goes, "Hey, man, you're. I know that you're you're a bit shy, but you don't. You seem to be fine up on the panel and stuff." And I just looked at him and I went, "I am shaking." all over. My my whole body is soaked in sweat. Like I talked for like three minutes in front of, you know, a hundred people and I feel like I'm going to die.
2: Oh no, I know the feeling. It's strange, isn't it? Because I think a lot of people who go into writing, we are naturally more introverted, kind of nerdy types of people. But then there is this aspect of our job where we're expected to go from being these, you know, sitting on our own in a room writing, but then we have to become performers. And I was fascinated by this for America, especially because in the UK it tends to be that when we do author events it's normally kind of an interview format like you'll have a moderator who asks you questions Um, whereas when I go on tour in America I have to specifically ask my publisher to call ahead because I've heard that a lot of US authors I'm sure you can tell me if I'm right or wrong But you had you sort of it tends to be the authors kind of do a speech as the event.
1: I hate it. I hate it so much.
2: Oh, my God. I can't I couldn't do that. Like one time I went to I think it was Tennessee and I think it's on YouTube. And for God's sake, don't look it up because it's a mess. But I think they didn't get the message that I wanted a moderator. So I just had to do a speech like off the cuff it was terrifying. I was I, like, I, and like you said, I was like shaking and sweating and it was, and of course they, that was the one event that they, they were filming. So I'm, there's, just, there's just this YouTube video where I'm clearly going to pieces in terror.
1: I, I definitely, so early on, I got a little bit of kind of local sort of, you know, I grew up in the Midwest in Ohio. I got a little bit of uh, kind of local attention where I got invited to speak at a couple of libraries and things like that. And, you know, I said, yes, because that's what I'm supposed to do. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, I show up and I kind of prepared, I had a bunch of notes and everything. And, and I felt it just, it was miserable every time. And everybody was always very nice and really cool about it. Uh, But then I decided at that point, I was like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going my, from now on, I'm going to have some random crap that I talk about for five minutes. (laughs) And then I'm going to turn it over to the audience to to ask me questions, to kind of try to engage with them uh, because that is something I can do a little bit easier than just talking blindly. But I I absolutely hate the expectations of getting up in front of an audience and, and just talking for an hour. Uh, yeah, that's not what I do.
2: I was sh- I was so so shocked when I realized that, and it's 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 like my terror that I, I feel so, like such a diva that I have to call ahead and be like, sorry, can we organize a moderator because I'm so I'm just useless. I cannot just do a speech unless. I mean, I think I did one speech in in Poland once, but it was bec- that was like the only format for the event, and I just did a speech about strong female characters, which is something I felt quite strongly about. Um, But yeah, to do it for like a whole tour. And I'm always so interested when I see American authors getting up on the stage and doing these incredible performances and they sound so confident. And I'm like, oh my goodness, where'd you, where'd you get this from? (laughs) I'm so envious.
1: I, uh, I, I, I get really, yeah, I get super annoyed with authors who are able to do that so easily. I, I remember uh, really early on in my career, I went to a local signing that had Brent Weeks speaking Mm. Uh, and and he was and we had the same publisher. And so I wanted to meet him and everything. It was very and it was really fun to meet him. And we've become friends, Um, but uh, but I got there and sat down and he had written like a whole uh, he'd written like a whole bonus scene to be able to read out to people that you know for 40 minutes wow. and and then he talked and he you know answered questions and he was just so good at it that I was immediately <laughs> furious
2: it is oh yeah it's just it just does it just makes me so envious I would love that I mean I I can do I've got better over the years I think the good thing about doing events over and over again is you you do become a bit more confident in you you step into that performer role but it is it doesn't come easily to me at all and I imagine it doesn't come easily to a lot of authors, but some authors make it look very easy, and I'm very jealous.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, same, very much so. Um, so, so, do you feel like kind of that early success? Do you feel like it put a lot of pressure on subsequent books?
2: I put pressure on that book. <laughs> it was, it was, it was terrifying because imagine being compared to one of the most, you know, successful authors of all time. It sets you up for failure immediately. So yeah. it was. It was it was kind of I remember once I uh, shortly after The Bone Season was published and it became an instant New York Times bestseller, you know, because it had so much media attention, which was lovely. But I remember I went to do an interview for the BBC and the the person interviewing me said to me, oh, so your book didn't sell as many as Harry Potter. Are you disappointed? And I was like, (laughs) what do you mean? Of course it didn't. It was just it was it was it was a silly comparison to use it, it was just and it was setting the book up for failure and it, it was looking back on it it is terrifying because I think that it could very easily have tanked my career from the offset because it was so much pressure to put on a young debut and I'm not saying The Bone Season is, is a bad book but it is a, it's a debut novel you know it's not it's not my best piece of work I think everyone's debut there are things that they would change about it um yeah and it, it, it was terrifying and especially because so much of the interest in me at that time was not based on on the book. It was based on me personally, and it was based on how young I was. And if being young is your your selling point when you come into the public eye, you're not going to be young forever. So that's yeah. a problem. Because <laughs> so, it, it was just this, this huge excitement over the fact that I was just 20 years old. And of course, by the time the book comes out, I'm 21. And the next year, I'm 22, 23. So the, the I think publishing does kind of have a thing with very young authors. And I have a lot of thoughts on how that can, that can badly impact them and how you, you shouldn't be using youth as a marketing point because not every author's career will survive that. And I feel very lucky that mine did.
1: Yeah. Now that see, that's fascinating because when I was in the situation, You know, like I I didn't get the kind of media attention that you did, but it was Mm. certainly like a bit of a talking point that, you know, I sold this book when I was 25. I hadn't had a career. There was nothing else going on in my life. Mm. I just suddenly became a writer. And, and I, I feel like at the moment, I, I, I leaned into whatever I could get my fingers on in terms of a talking point or wh- how to promote this book and things like that. Yeah. And I, I guess I've never really thought about if I could kind of do that over, if I would have maybe played that down or
0: not. Yeah.
1: Yeah. But I, I didn't get that kind of – I didn't have that kind of massive pressure to be a, 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 just a huge success and, and I've been kind of weirdly lucky in, in that my books have been consistent moderate successes mm. rather than like a massive splash and then everybody expects something from me.
2: I think that's, that's quite good though, building like a solid, you know, solid sales base because it's obviously nice to get a huge bestseller right off the bat, but then you have to keep matching that and it almost sets yourself a really high target that you have to keep hitting every time. Um, but I think publishing does, you know, it's, there's a pressure on us to be instant bestsellers. And I think that can be very harmful because like I said, our dabies are not usually our best pieces of work and not every, you know, not every, Every author is going to be a huge bestseller. I, I doubt I would have been. I was just very, I say, fortunate. I had. I, I'm a. i am I have an odd relationship with the media attention I got because I recognised that that was the reason that I was an instant success. I'm, I, I'm under no illusions that I. I doubt I would have been otherwise. But it was also a lot of pressure. And it, I was lucky that I survived it, basically, I really in terms of my career, because, you know, if you if you sell, a, you sell an author purely based on a look at this young person getting a book deal, and it is dangerous, it's a dangerous marketing tactic. And I don't think Bloomsbury did it deliberately, it just it happened organically, it just so happened that the media picked it up. And once one newspaper had it, then others started reporting on it. But yeah, I have a I, it was a very dark mental health period for me because um, I felt just that level of attention was quite frightening at points. And it's interesting as well that you don't realize, you know, I remember when I was on this Australian morning TV, and they were scrolling under my face that I was a multimillionaire. (laughs) I'd love to be a multimillionaire, but I can assure you that I'm not. (laughs) So there was this weird extra level of pressure that people, you know, people are saying things about you that aren't even true. And then you have to decide how much you can reasonably respond to that and whether you should. Respond to that. um So yeah, that was a that was a whole thing as well. It was a, it was a very odd period.
1: Yeah, and I, I imagine that most authors have an uh, an interesting relationship with their debut book. You know, for any number of different mm-hmm. reasons. Do you, do you ever kind of look back at it? And bitterness seems way too strong of a word, but kind of look back on it and <laughs> and kind of maybe a little annoyed and be like, I you know this yes, I had this massive splash, but I'm a different writer now. That was a long time ago. Things like I'm changing and I'm developing and I'm I'm, hopefully I'm a lot better, you know,
2: oh yes absolutely especially because the the series that i launched with i'm still writing now it's, it's a long series so i've been writing this series for a decade and the most recent book in the series that came out the mask falling is so much better than the first book and it's interesting so i'm trying to sell a series that, and obviously i have to get people to read the debut first and like i said i think that the bone season for you know for a 19 year old girl writing that i think it's it's an amazing achievement but it's i don't think it sells the series quite as well as the later books, just because it isn't my strongest work and there are things that there are mistakes that I wouldn't make now so for example the entire first chapter of the bone season is basically a giant info dump where I tell you everything about the world regardless of whether you really need to know it at this exact moment and of course that that tends to be something that that can put people off especially if they're not experienced fantasy Mm -hmm. readers and so yeah it's it's not I I reckon I'm not at all saying that it's like a a bad book per se, but there's certainly things I would do differently now, even very small things. Like I remember when I was a bit younger, um, I, I kind of went in with this harmful assumption that all fantasy books had to have a degree of misogyny in them, I think because I had just seen, you know, some degree of misogynistic fantasy so often. So there are these really random moments of just misogyny in the book, like a character gets called a whore for literally no reason. And, that, and I just look at that and I'm like, oh, that's so oh, young Samantha, you didn't have to do that. <laughs> it's just a little, it's a few little things like that rather than big things.
1: I, I feel like that, that was a, a kind of a small trap I fell into as well. You know, I, um, I, mm-hmm. I I, had a great chat with uh, Joe Abercrombie on this podcast about kind of this idea of writing. Uh, he called it blokey books, kind of le- leading oh, yes. in your <laughs> career with a, a, a very male centric novel and then kind of understanding writing and the publishing atmosphere and the readership way better and kind of looking back at that and going, Huh. I I wish I hadn't done that quite that way.
2: Oh, that's so that's so interesting. I'm, I'm always fascinated to know how how male authors feel about this. But yeah, it's interesting starting off with a blokey book. But it's interesting. I I almost started off with being a bit yeah, like it's. I just thought for some reason that there was this this tangled relationship between misogyny and fancy, And I've written about this um, because it's a topic that really fascinates me. But so many, even young women will say to me when they read the Priory of the Orange Tree, my most recent um, sort of, new work um they'll say I hadn't realized until I read Priory I thought that my fantasy had to be misogynistic and it's not that I'm saying we we can never write misogynistic fantasy I would never say that there must always be room in fantasy for us to explore real world issues and I do explore misogyny in various ways in my work but it's more I think a lot of people default to writing this kind of a fantasy where there is some degree of misogyny yeah. in, in the world building you know whether or not whether it's some kind of casual insult towards women like gendered insults or or even the fact that women are there's not a lot of women in positions of power things like that and if you don't I don't think a lot of people even realize they're doing it and like I said it's really important that there's space for us to do that but the thing I've always said is that that should not be an expectation of fantasy it should be something that we can do but it definitely it's like in Game of Thrones like I remember there's a certain act of violence committed towards a certain woman in Game of Thrones. And it was fascinating to see how many men in particular were saying, well, it's just inevitable because history was violent towards women. It's like, well, number one, <laughs> fantasy isn't history, so we're not beholden to it. And, you know, you don't, you, it, yeah, it, it's, it's more that they seem to be expecting it of the genre, which, which I do find problematic.
1: Well, and that exact argument is a, a kind of marked a turning point for myself. It was very much a uh, kind of seeing that the Game of Thrones and then that, you know, the fights that kind of broke out all over online and everything over, you know, the way women are treated, the way kind of history is treated uh, as a kind of fantasy analog, you know, things like that, Mm. that definitely kind of made, made me look kind of harder at what I was doing and then kind of go, oh, yeah this isn't real. I don't have to make it super real. I can have female soldiers. I don't have to worry about male inheritance, you know, like all these little things. Like, I can just make this crap up. It's my own world.
2: Exactly. And there is a strange degree of cognitive dissonance that it's okay to have dragons, but it's not okay to have equal rights for women. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's it's like this odd expectation that, and and if you do write women being equal or you write a world that is you know diverse or has queer characters at the center of it there's this sort of oh you're writing a really woke fantasy it's it's all about politics it's it's too political and it's like is it or am i just i, I don't <laughs> it's just this bizarre expectation yeah. that and it and it, it's holding fantasy to a standard of history that didn't even exist like history has always been diverse and filled with you know women in positions of authority but it's it's like there is a certain sector of fantasy fans who think that fantasy needs to honor this idea of history that they have in their own heads
1: (laughs) right and it's it is bizarre and it i i think it kind of comes from I don't know the genesis of you know of fantasy as like kind of a modern genre. Mm. Uh, you know, like it it comes from that sort of you know. Lord of the Rings is pretty blokey, you know. <laughs> like <It> is, yes. <laughs> there's a lot of lot of this stuff that kind of you know developed, maybe not even probably mostly not on purpose. That just kind of created the way we think about things, and and it wasn't until I think fairly recently that your authors and audiences kind of went, oh, eh, well, I don't actually have to hold to this.
2: Yeah, exactly. It's. I think it just, yeah, it, it's a very odd standard that we have. I think more people are talking about it now. And again, I, I'm, I must clarify that I'm not saying that we can never explore topics like sexism and fantasy, but yeah, it, it just makes me there is definitely a vein of people who think that if you don't have a sexist world, then it's some kind of problem and it's, yeah, it's odd. Yeah.
1: And, and it all depends on the author and what they want to do. The every, every author is kind of able to do what they want. You know, for me personally, that's not a topic I really care to spend a ton of time on. Mm. And so I try to kind of create my worlds as being very gender neutral, very gender equal. And, and just, I don't know. It's, because the moment i start trying to put effort into exploring the topic it's something that will require a lot more of me and makes mm. and 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 make my books not Kind of force me to transcend these are silly adventure novels that i really enjoy writing and i want to make a living off of
2: right yeah yeah it's yeah and i, I think there should be room for both i think that there should be top you know books that explore real world topics and there should also basically i love to see books where women rise up against the patriarchy but i also like to see books yeah. where there is no patriarchy like i want both i don't i don't think that certain groups of people should expect to always see themselves being oppressed even in fantasy. I think, you know, as fantasy authors, we can transcend that and we can show how we would like the world to be as well as how the world is. So it's good to have a balance, I think.
1: Yeah. So we we talked kind of about uh, kind of your early success and kind of that pressure that that put on you. Mm. And there was an interesting question off of Twitter about what your big kind of level up as a writer was. And I was curious starting off as someone who kind of made quite a big splash. Have you had moments where you felt like okay, I've really hit the next level?
2: Um I think I think getting my second bestseller did mean a lot to me because it you know the first time it was To do with this huge media storm and i was acutely aware of that and it was it was lovely when the second book became a bestseller because obviously it didn't have that media storm preceding it so it told me that i did have readers who were in this for the long term and that they actually liked my writing because the interest the first time like i said was generated by me as a person not by the book whereas the second book you know, people had definitely read the first book. So that definitely gave me a lot of confidence. I think in terms of levelling up, writing The Priory of the Orange Tree was a huge step forward in my career, I think, because I was actually returning to my roots when I wrote it. Because when I was young, I always used to write in third person. And then when I wrote The Bone Season, it just came out in first person. And that was quite unusual for me. So when I returned to Priory, I was going back to my my teenage writing roots. And I just felt I came into my own with my writing there like I love I love the first person voice of the bone season but it was nice to be able to I think with third, you can show off a little bit more. You can refine your writing style and you can show off a little bit with metaphors. And it it would look a bit odd if my first person character, for example, stood there and was like, oh, the glorious moribund sunset or something like that. (laughs) But it was nice. It was nice to be able to... I called it alchemy, writing priory. It was like I was unlocking a new phase in my writing.
1: Well, and it's a different... It's kind of a different world setting, right? Uh, kind of uh, secondary yes. versus kind of uh, alternate Earth, right? Uh, yes, do you exactly. Did you find that you kind of enjoyed playing in one sandbox versus the other? Because there are certain requirements when you're writing something that's alternate Earth or alternate real world that you have to touch on the real world. And, and that makes it a little bit of a different beast.
2: Yes, it makes it easier and harder in some ways, because you have the structure of the real world already set out for you, of course, but then you do have to honor real world rules a lot more. Whereas when you're in a secondary world, you, you have to, it's a bit daunting, because you have to essentially start from scratch, but you have a bit more freedom in terms of the rules and magic systems and that sort of thing. Um, I don't know if I prefer one or the other. I mean, there is a degree of of real world influence in Priory and I use history as quite a strong uh, inspiration so it is in a way a bit like writing an alternate world and there's a you know I have to do research to feel comfortable with building it. Um, But no, I like both and I, I like having two worlds to work on. And I remember when I started the bone season, I always said I would just work on one series until it was finished. But then I, I'm really glad that I went back on that because I felt like having the two of them Meant that I never stagnated in one or the other. I always had, if you know, if I started to feel like I was stagnating on one, I could move into the other world. And I think being able to switch between those two modes has sharpened my writing and helped it mature. Whereas I think if I'd just written from one first-person perspective for the last decade, I don't think that would have been good for me creatively. I think I needed something else to keep my craft, you know, alive and developing.
1: Yeah, to be able to kind of learn from yourself and change things up. And because if, if you keep doing the yeah. same exact thing over and over again, you may get very good at it. But I feel like you do, you lose your sharpness in other areas.
2: Yeah, I really think so. I'm, I'm definitely glad I had the two things. And I'm hoping to work on my third project this year that's separate from both of them. So oh, very
1: good. Very good. What did you, um? so uh, Priory started off as standalone, right? And that, but you are working on a sequel.
2: Uh, not a sequel, oh, it's prequel. a prequel. Okay. Um, I, haven't, I, I, I haven't even formally announced it yet, but I've, it's like it's like this strange situation where I sold it three years ago, but I haven't formally announced it. So I keep going rogue and talking about it, even though I'm not <laughs> supposed to. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was kind of hard for me to hide that I was working on something for three years. So what can I say? But yes, it is a prequel. Um, I can't right. say a lot about it, but it's set in the sa- same world as Priory. And it's... It it was interesting because I did start it off as a standalone. And I remember when I said to my agent, it's just going to be one story and then I'm going to go back to my series. And he looked at me and he said, no, it's not. I know you. And it, it did end up getting a lot bigger than I expected, because I, I wanted to build this really big, rich, complex fantasy world with a very long timeline. Inevitably, I became interested in other periods of the world's history, and I became fascinated by some of the characters that I'd created for the history. And yeah, it's the idea is that I want it to be a series of standalones, rather than with the bone season, it is, you know, you, you have to read them in order to understand what's happening. Whereas with... With the Priory world, I would like you to just be able to pick up any one of the books and understand what's going on. So it's more like a cycle than a a sequence, I suppose.
0: Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices
1: Did you uh, did you ever read the um, I forget what the like the overall world is called like the Redwall books like the Brian Jacques um, no, those those ones were very formative to my childhood and those those were very kind of loosely connected in sort of a it shared this it shared settings and it shared the uh, lots of the history and everything but the books I can't remember I, I think there were some that were very direct sequels. But they they tended to jump mm. around quite a lot in the history of the world, and I've never done that, and I'm I'm kind of intrigued by the idea.
2: Yeah, I think it is an interesting way to approach it, and especially because the books are so yeah. big, um, which is because I'm trying to tell essentially what could probably be a trilogy in one book. Um, but I think asking people to commit to a very long series of thick novels—I know some authors do it. Um, I, I I'm not at that point yet, <laughs> so um, and I did I did design the first one to just. Stand by itself, so I thought that was an interesting approach to take. So yeah, it should should hopefully be that you can just pick up any of them as and when you feel like it.
1: What are the what are the word counts roughly for your series? <laughs>
2: um, <laughs> the <laughs> uh, the series. So the Bone Season is a, a relatively normal one hundred twenty eight thousand, yeah. I think, and the the Bone Season books are normally somewhere in that area, kind of fluctuating between about one hundred fifteen through to about one hundred fifty. Whereas Priory was two.
1: 206. Yeah.
2: Maybe. And then, wait for it. My new one, the first draft, was
1: 345.
2: Oh my words. gosh. It's <laughs> a beast. <laughs> I know, and I remember when when I said to Bloomsbury that I wanted to write another one, they were like okay, if, if you could try to make it shorter than Priory, I was like yeah, sure, sure, no problem, that would be no problem at all, but it was inevitably going to be longer because this one takes place over a much longer time period than Priory did, and it's, it's just a much bigger story in terms of its scope it's much more ambitious um, I have fortunately managed to cut it from 345 down to 290 I think, but it, I mean it's Still massive, but I feel like I feel like there are bigger books out there. Like I'm pretty sure did right. Brandon Sanderson write one that was like four hundred twenty thousand or something? Is it oaths oh, something?
1: Brandon's are Brandon's are absolutely insane, but Brandon can get away with it because yes. he's Brandon.
2: He's Brandon, so that's okay. Right. I'm not Brandon,
1: <laughs> so I'm
2: I'm amazed I'm amazed anyone is letting me get away with this. <laughs>
1: I, I remember when I, uh, my so first Powder Mage, I think was 165. And uh, and then I, I crept up and I think the final one was 190 or something like that. But I stayed, I, I stayed awesome. in that grouping and I I kept swearing up and down to myself that I was going to kind of, all right, this, this is going to be lean epic fantasy. You know, I'll cut out the feast scenes and all the, you know, the ridiculous things that epic fantasy <laughs> authors tend to put in, but I, as a reader, usually skim. And I kept telling myself that. Yes. And then the, the new book for tour, I think it came in at two fifteen or two twenty, and I just looked at that final draft and went, um, "Oh no, I'm just creeping."
2: Oh no! Did you did you finally write some feast scenes? Could you just Gosh, I don't think I
1: more? do. I have a feast scene. I don't think I have done a feast scene yet. Uh, I, I have food in my books quite a lot but uh but none of the big kind of set piece sort of you know characters are all talking over dinner for you know 60,000 words kind of thing.
2: Yeah, the classic George R R Martin, you know, every single there's like 70 dishes and each one described in beautiful sumptuous detail which is right very, very exactly. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I hope, I mean, I I worked very hard with my editor to try and get this down to a reasonable. like we wanted to make sure that every word counted if it was going to be that long. And that was important to me. Um, And I think it does all need to be there. It's just because there are, it's it's mostly because of the number of narrators. I think there are four narrators Mm -hmm. in Priory and there are four main narrators in this new one with four, I call them satellite narrators. They just tell like little bits of it. So I think that is the main reason they're so big. It's, each individual character's story is quite lean it's just because there's four stories that are all intertwined in some way so that's why they've ended up as long as they are but I feel I feel very lucky that Bloomsbury is supporting me in writing big novels like this well and it's
1: funny because when you do creative writing and you're talking to your teachers and you know the like other students things like that you're told that you need to keep even big books you're told okay epic fantasy keep it to 120 130 like like they tell mm. you these things and then you look at the successful epic fantasy and you're like you're looking at you know 160 at minimum but then it goes all the way up yeah. to Brandon and Rothfuss and you know people like that who just create these just massive tomes and it's and and you realize over time you realize, okay, they do that because they are something special, right? They are the big bestsellers. They're allowed yeah. to do that. They've earned it. But man, it's it's such a weird kind of yeah weird cognitive dissonance of you're supposed to keep it lean, but also epic fantasy needs to be very deep. Uh, you know, it need it yeah. Just, Like, what are you supposed to do with that?
2: It is so difficult. And like, even things like the Outlander books as well. I mean, they're enormous. And I I suppose they're kind of historical fantasy, but people clearly love those. I mean, they're enormously popular. And I do sometimes feel a bit sad that, there were probably some books out there that didn't get published because of their size that could potentially have been very successful and it's interesting when you know aspiring writers say to me you know should I be keeping my book shorter how big was yours and it was interesting so when I went to Bloomsbury um, obviously I didn't approach them with a book the size of Priory but I remember that they at the time had I think they had sort of three big fantasy books that they'd done before and one of them was Jonathan Strange and Mr Norrell and that was a debut and if you is enormous. it's huge it's an enormous book. <laughs> it's huge and clearly that had been very successful and clearly somebody at Bloomsbury had trusted in the author's writing and taken a chance on it and it had paid off so I was lucky that at Bloomsbury they did have precedent and I wasn't forced to cut the bone season down to a certain word count it just ended up on roughly 130 I think yeah but it is an interesting topic and it, yeah I'm not I, I suppose I suppose the main reason that agents and editors do it is because they don't want to risk the cost of a huge book on an unknown author. But it's, it is a, yeah, it's, it's a tricky
1: one. Yeah. I I wonder if there's anything kind of psychological going on there that kind of harkens back to the days of, you know, submitting a manuscript was literally a massive pile of paper. And like, you know, if you're an agent or an editor and you get this cold query of a manuscript that is, 1,200 pages long. The first thing that goes through your head is, "Well, that's not happening."
2: Yeah, it's, it's just it's, it's a lot. It's a lot to read. I, I can I can understand it for sure, and it's the readers as well. You know, do they want to trust in? They don't know what this author is like. If if you're if you're a first time author, are they going to risk that much time and investment in an author that they don't know? Um, but it is interesting. Like I was I was interested to see whether Priory would be successful at the size it was because I remember, I remember when my when I told. My grandmother about it and she was like Samantha is anyone gonna want to read a book that long like really about dragons (laughs) I was like oh I I hope so grandma (laughs) she was very supportive of me as well but she even she she was very suspicious that this was not going to go well and um but it was interesting because I think I think there is an appeal in the standalone to to a, to, to a readership because so many books now are split into either duologies or trilogies and it's interesting because that to me it does conflict to a degree with our we now expect to be able to binge things like tv shows and I think that there are certain readers who do appreciate even if it's a chunky standalone but they can get the whole story at once they don't have to wait a, a year for the next installment so I think that I think that is part of why Priory has worked for people because they even though it is a very daunting book and so many people tell me how intimidated they are by it especially because Bloomsbury they Bloomsbury tends to go for this very thick paper which looks beautiful and there's, that's clearly why they're using it but it does make the hardback look really frightening um I'm sort of hoping for the next one they use more of that bible paper that's very, very thin. I don't think you'll be able to hold it otherwise um but yeah once people have read it I think they do appreciate that they can get it all in one go I think there is there's something quite comforting about that and i think it's a little bit rare nowadays when books do tend to be broken down into multiple installments
1: well and it's it's interesting because there's there's so many different psychological angles you come at if you're trying to you know think like a reader right Mm. uh like like with epic fantasy i almost say the opposite in that Uh, you know, if a reader is going to get invested with this super deep world, they want to stay in that world for six books or nine books, you know, like they, they, people love that. And when I was a little kid, when I used to read voraciously before I did it for a living, uh, you know, like I, I loved that. that. That was exactly the type of thing I looked for. Was a massive series that I could dig into and keep revisiting my favorite characters.
2: Yeah, and I, I, I am acutely aware of that as well as somebody who is writing a seven book series. Um, and I, I was sort of taking two different approaches with the two worlds I'm writing. And it is interesting because. People who enjoyed Priory have said to me, "You know, is there a sequel coming? Because they want to see the same characters again." <laughs> and I'm having to awkwardly explain that most of the characters that you know and love are not alive <laughs> in the next books. They're not born yet. <laughs> um, so you're going to have to, you're going to have to hopefully like a whole different cast of characters. So I- I'll be interested to see how readers approach it and how they respond to this because obviously some people will come to the prequel without having read Priory at all so they may then want another story about the prequel characters um so yeah it would be interesting to to see how I'm, I'm excited to see how readers respond to this one
1: now I I had seen that you um so you when you were at college you did English language and lit and you specialized yes. in Emily Dickinson and film criticism I did. I, yes, I, 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 I'm I curious how you in your head kind of match up the way your career has gone to what you did for school. It is an interesting topic. What, what did you do at, at college? I, I was an English major. Like the most, the most bland okay. possible sort of, I, I hated school. I hated everything about it. I, I was not I was kind of not built, especially that age, I was not built to be able to function in that structured of an environment.
2: Mm. No, I I understand.
1: Uh, Yeah, no, I I mean, I did, I, I got, I barely graduated. And it was only because I aced every single creative writing class I took, because it was effortless for me, while everything else took so much work.
2: Ah, oh, so you did do creative writing. See, I, I didn't have any sort of creative writing element to my course at all. Um, it was just purely based on analyzing language and literature. Oh, and fascinating. there was, yeah. So there is the, the course that I wanted to do, I, I, I wanted to do the, the English course at Oxford because it examines, uh, the English language right from its, you know, inception in old English all the way through to the modern day. So it's a very broad course that you can take. Um, but no, there's no creative writing element. I think they only just introduced. I think you can now do a creative writing master's mm. degree at Oxford. Um, but in in the UK, there has always been a. I, I feel a slight stigma about around creative writing. I feel it's considered a a soft subject in a way that. That other subjects are considered similar, mostly in the arts. Things like media studies. Um, One of my, I remember I did media studies at uh, high school, and one of my teachers like actively discouraged me from doing it because they felt it was a a soft subject that Oxford would sort of not even look at my application if I sent it. Funnily enough, the reason I got into Oxford was because of media studies because I learned about a certain narrative. Theory that I used in my interview but anyway that's a whole different topic <laughs> um but yeah I didn't have any sort of creative writing element I've actually never studied creative writing oh, interesting so it's yeah I'm, I'm totally self-taught um I think I went to I think I maybe did I go to I, I went to sort of a writing club at a library for a, a short amount of time once but generally I've been I've been self-taught so I'm, I'm always really interested to know about you know creative writing and how it's taught and what what you learn and how the, how you know, Do you stick to that or is it, do they teach you kind of prescriptive rules or is it more like a a guidebook, I suppose? I
1: I had a kind of an interesting experience with that because, you know, as an English major, uh, the kind of the way the university worked is they didn't have like a minor that you could take in creative writing. There was, Hmm. I think there was a master's program, but there was not an undergrad program. So you had to get your English major and then get into the creative writing masters, which I never did. Uh. But they had, you you could take tons of different electives, right? Like to fill out your graduation forms, whatever. And the electives, they had a pretty robust creative writing kind of Cor- uh, like I think there were three or four different levels of the course. And uh, and I just kind of jumped into that for my elect- electives because I knew that's what I like doing. Mm. And and I had a l- slightly different experiences. I had one class, which I dropped after one day. <laughs> the teacher started off by saying how he thought that genre fiction was garbage oh. and was not worth a serious writer. And it's funny because Brandon uh, went to the same school and he has a a similar story about the same teacher where he said, Oh, well, I'm going to prove him wrong and stayed in the class and learned (laughs) and did all the, and, and got through. And obviously he's now Brandon Sanderson. Right. But I, I did one day with that same teacher and went, yeah, screw this. I'm not doing this.
2: Okay. Yeah. (laughs) I kind of, I I like both approaches. I think you were, I think you're perfectly within your rights to leave, but I also quite like Brandon's staying out of spite approach.
1: Yeah. And, and you know, and I, that didn't even occur to me at the time. And I look back on it, you know, since meeting Brandon and learning that story and everything, I look back on that and, and part of me wishes I had stayed out of spite. Uh, but, but I had a couple other really good, you know, Brandon ended up as a teacher for me. Cause he's, he's about, hmm. I think he was about nine or 10 years ahead of me, um, in terms of age and where we were in school and stuff. And, uh, But uh, so I had Brandon, I had a a couple others, really good teachers that were all, you know, that all had various kind of approaches in terms of trying to, some of them were very basic in terms of, you know, trying to teach very basic story structure. And, you know, one of the classes I took uh, focused entirely on like very short stories, like, you know, three, 4,000 words Mm. that didn't stick with me at all.
2: yeah it is so interesting seeing how writers uh, approach kind of coming into the craft like I remember I think Victoria Aveyard she started as a a screenwriter I think I think she learned screenwriting and she I think if I remember correctly she wrote Red Queen as a screenplay and then sort of converted it into a novel so it's so interesting that we all come at it from such different paths and with such different backgrounds in terms of how much we've actually learned about writing and how we've learned
1: very much so and it because, it, because we all kind of come to creativity in our own way, right? Like, you know, some of us had, mm-hmm. you know, like my mom read to me when I was a little kid. And that was so insanely yeah. formative to kind of who I became. Um, and, and other people kind of, you know, they hit their mid 40s, and suddenly decide to start reading and then, you know, and then leave their career to write novels,
2: it's, yeah, it is interesting. It's and yeah, I've. I mean, I I hope that my writing works because, like I say, I am totally self taught. So I, I do sometimes feel a shiver of kind of worry that I've learned how to do it wrong because I've never received any kind of formal education in it. But yeah, I, I think it's. I think it's nice that we all come from such different backgrounds and different approaches.
1: Well, and I I actually quite like that. I like the idea of being self taught. Yes, you know, like because there's there is a certain amount of. Almost having having to learn from your mistakes in a very uh, powerful way Mm -hmm. that comes from that sort of thing uh, that I I find incredibly respectable Um, because because especially in the arts it doesn't you can have a pedigree you know you can have gone to a creative creative writing courses or or if you know if you're a if you're a painter you know you can have gone to art school you know things like that but those things give you a leg up they don't necessarily reflect what the final product is and and the final is what matters isn't it
2: yeah and i do i do think that there is no single correct way to write and when when people ask me for writing advice my my main piece of advice is always don't take too much advice <laughs> because i have seen some pretty i have seen some pretty harmful advice out there in my opinion like i've seen people you know very established authors say before things like oh to be a writer you have to write a thousand words every day otherwise you're not taking it seriously and it's just it's not possible for some people i don't write a thousand words every day there are people who are not in a situation where they can do that you know that they might not have the financial security to do that they might have like multiple dependents and there's so many reasons why somebody couldn't write a thousand words a day you know i have i have more than one chronic illness that means that some days i just can't write or sit at my computer at all so it you know that kind of writing advice does bother me a bit where it becomes really prescriptive and it's just uh, yeah that it frustrates me when i see that so i do think you should take all advice with a pinch of salt
1: oh absolutely i um i we uh, on this podcast we talk about self-publishing a bit just because it's a it's a interesting topic for this Business. And I, I I may rag on it a little too much sometimes, even though I deeply respect self-publishing as like a as a format and as a thing to do. And I think one of the reasons I rag on it too much is because you find a lot of self-publishers who do that thing where they present the way you have. To do it. Yes. And they they present it as, you know, like as they are the lord of this kingdom and you have to do it the way they told you. Mm. And I hate that so much.
2: Yeah, I, I don't know a lot about self-publishing. Um, so that, that is something that does interest. It. It's something I did consider for my first book um, before I before I got my book deal with Bloomsbury. Um, and it, it is something I massively respect. It's just the fact that you have to do all the marketing and the design and everything by yourself. I, I just couldn't imagine that. It's, you are your own team. <laughs> it's, it's incredible. Um, but yeah, I mean I think in all sections of publishing there's a lot of people who I think give bad advice in a way that takes advantage of people's desperate desire to be a writer and you see so many things I imagine that you see these scams for example where you know people are saying like oh I'm an agent you just have to pay me a thousand dollars or whatever to publish your book and Yeah, it does bother me that there is a a sector that really, I think, I think being a writer is such a deep dream for some people. Like it's, it's such an overwhelming desire. Like when I was a teenager, I would literally wish on stars. All I wanted was to be a writer. It was just, it was just my whole life was that dream. And I I do worry that there are people out there who take advantage of that. So it's, I'm very glad when, I I see authors on TikTok sometimes who are saying, like, you don't pay people. Like, they're really trying to, you know, counter that tide of misinformation that you see. It really really troubles me when I see that someone's, like, paid to have their book published or paid an agent. It's, yeah.
1: Well, and that was one of the first things I learned from Brandon when I took his class Mm. was he had this rule. And I can't remember if he came up with it or if it was something he had gotten from a previous teacher of his. But it was uh, it was money should always flow towards the author. Yes, and it was such a simple way of stating: don't let yourself get pulled into these predatory publishing schemes.
2: Exactly, I think that's a really good piece of advice yeah.
1: Yeah, I I really like that, and I, I I I liked you know, and that was one of the things that you know with Brandon, it was funny because we talked you know a bit about kind of creating creative writing classes and things. Uh, Brandon was different from the creative writing classes the other ones I took because he talked about business so much he talked about it as a job rather than as a dream mm-hmm. and i i know that a lot of writers love the romanticism about you know having having writing be your dream i've never really lo- like kind of jumped into that and and looking at at it as a meeting of my creativity and having to be a business person actually really works for me I know it doesn't for a lot of people but it does for me yeah
2: no I, th- I think I think it's a very valid point and I think that you know you don't think about so many I mean the, the business things when you first go into it but it's so important and I think to some extent you know I I haven't had to think too business like for some of it because I've been fortunate that I've always been very supported by my publishers so I don't feel as if I'm constantly having to fight with them about business things um but that that is a privilege of having a supportive publisher and you do need to advocate for yourself and you do need to have a business head to some degree
1: well and I I was curious when you kind of had that when you were like 20 and you were starting to go on these, you know, kind of press tours and things like that. Did you have someone, a family member or a friend or anything that you were constantly bouncing these things off of and trying to get guidance for?
2: Oh, Bloomsbury actually got me media training at one point because I think they. Oh, wow. Yeah, I think they were slightly overwhelmed by it because it it had really taken everyone by surprise. And it, it was just it was just the the most the most wildly surreal things. Like I was in Vogue, I was flown out to New York to do the New York Times Magazine. Um, like literally, they just flew me to New York for a day. Like, what kind of wild dream is that for just a, a young British girl who just thought of New York as being like the place in the movies? You know, it was just, it was just all of this wild stuff was happening, and I was on, you know, BBC and just these huge things. And again, I was totally unprepared. So yeah, they did get me um, media training, where they would they would sort of talk me through how to cope with harder questions and how, you know how to just various ways of dealing. It's, yeah, it's mostly about how to deal with questions that you don't really know how to answer. There's little sort of ways that you can answer a different question instead without making it obvious that you're doing it. (laughs) Um, But yeah, they were really supportive of me. I think it just took everyone by surprise the the strength of the media response to it.
1: Yeah, and well, I'm really glad because like it it does even, even I think the most well-meaning publishers I feel like could probably fall into the trap of, oh, we've got a we've got a potential cash cow here. Let's just milk it for everything we can, right? Yes. And who who really cares about this this young kid trying to learn how to deal with of suddenly a spotlight? you
2: know? Exactly. And I I do, I do always feel a flicker of concern when I see kind of a a maternal concern when I see young (laughs) authors getting signed up and I see like, you know, 19 year old gets seven figure book deal or something just so mind blowing like that. And it's just, I have, I have sometimes reached out just to say, you know, I'm, I'm here if you need anything, because I didn't really, although I although Bloomsbury was supportive, I didn't really have a strong network of authors at the time. And I think a lot of people come in, to publishing from the online writing community. So, you know, you'll see people on Twitter who have clearly been, you know, in the community for some time and then they get deals, but then they already have a support network. Now I came totally from the outside. I didn't know anyone in the community at all. I didn't have any authors I could speak to. And that meant that I didn't know what was normal and what wasn't, what I should and shouldn't be agreeing to. I had no idea what I was doing. So it is really important to me that debuts are supported and they feel like they can reach out to established authors to ask questions or get advice or anything. So I, I didn't have that. And I did feel quite lonely for most of the first year because of that. That's
1: an interesting thing because I think that, you know, a lot of authors, myself included, you do get swamped by those kind of random emails of, I, you know, I'm a, I, I want to be an author. How do I become an author? Yes. It's such a vague, big question. It's huge. Yeah. That, right, that, that oftentimes I, you, you, just like, I'll let those emails sit in my inbox for like three weeks and I'll be like, I don't know how to answer this. And finally I'll either delete the email and feel horribly guilty about it and hope they assume I was too busy <laughs> or I'll, I'll answer something really vague and, and kind of, I don't know, try just. Not a good answer.
2: Yeah, it's hard. It's really hard because you don't you don't know their individual circumstances. You know, it's very it's very difficult to advise someone when you don't know their specific situation.
1: Yeah, but but when you have somebody who has already gotten a deal. Oh yeah. When somebody reaches out to you and said, "Hey, I I just got signed by whoever." you know do you have any thoughts for me that's way easier for me I can deal with that
2: yeah that's what I meant it's it's usually when they've already they're they've already got the deal so that I can help talk them through the structure of what they're about to go through it is harder when it's an aspiring writer because there's just you know like I say I find it very difficult to give any sort of advice because it's so specific to me and my journey that I don't know if it's going to work for them and I'm always very frank about this and I will just sometimes say you know what I'm not good at giving advice that is not my area I just because I, I think it's more harmful to give bad advice than to give no advice. But you've you've gone a step further than me by having like a a public email inbox because I don't have that. I, I I just don't know if I could. I, I feel like that would be very high pressure for me to have, like, to be that accessible.
1: <laughs> I, I think 90% of what I get is kind of fan mail. And it's the kind of fan mail that you, they don't really expect an answer. It's a, hey, I liked your books mm. kind of thing. And that's easy. You know, I can just, I can easily dash off a, oh, that's very kind of you. And it takes me 10 seconds. But, uh, but yeah, when I get like genuine questions, it always throws me for a loop and, and it's like I'll have forgotten that I have a public email up until that moment.
2: Yeah, it is hard because you're like, oh, am I the best person to advise you on this? And it is, <laughs> and it is such a subjective industry. It's, it's hard to know whether you're advising someone correctly. I think the closest I get, I actually still have Tumblr, which makes me feel about 400 years old because who the, heck, who the <laughs> right. hell is still on Tumblr? But I actually, I actually like Tumblr. I think Tumblr is overdue a renaissance, frankly, because it has a very good inbox system. And I do get a lot of questions in there, but they are mostly about my books, which is the kind of question I like answering because I know what I'm talking about. Yeah. <laughs> if, you are, if you ask me something about the world I've built, then I'm going to know the answer to that. Whereas if it's like, you know, how do I get published? Like, like you say, it is such a broad question. It's just, how do you even begin to answer that question? <laughs>
1: Near impossible.
2: <laughs> yeah, or like you know, I'm st- I'm struggling with my manuscript. What would you advise? And again, I don't know why they're struggling with their manuscript. There could be a million reasons for that. It could be that there's a problem with the manuscript. It could be their mental health. It could be anything. That's you know, it's, it it's huge questions. Very hard to answer.
1: Yeah, very much so. Well, um, I have kept you for quite a long time. That's all right. I I, I love to wrap these episodes up. By going totally into left field, um, what's the last food that you ate that blew your mind?
2: Oh gosh, um, what was the last? What was the last food I ate? Period. I can, I can
1: barely remember <laughs>
2: what I have for breakfast this morning. I had an absolutely terrific brownie yesterday. Come to think of it, if you ever had Ooh. one of those lotus biscuits, I don't know if you have them in the states. Like.
1: Um. I don't know if i have i'd have to see the packaging they're
2: like little sort of biscuits that you get with a coffee in like i don't know if you went to oh yeah yeah Yeah. they're
1: almost gingerbread like
2: yes yes that's the ones
1: yeah Yeah.
2: i had a lotus brownie at my local cafe and it was absolutely bloody delicious if i do say so myself
1: oh that sounds really good
2: yes i do like the brownie
1: Oh, I I love brownies so much. I uh, that was one of the things I, I decided. Uh, you know, we talked way early at the beginning here about kind of having an intervention for yourself. Yes. <laughs> um, and and that was my intervention at the be- uh, almost a year ago, right at the beginning of last year was. I can't eat garbage all the time. <laughs> and uh, and one of those things was that I I used to make brownies just just you know every Friday night kind of thing. Oh, nice. I'd just make a pan of brownies and Michelle and I would eat them over the course of the next day. And it, it's so bad, but I love brownies so much.
2: They are just so good. I, I'm, my current thing is I'm trying to give up coffee because, but it's like my one sad little vice I have left because I can't I can't drink alcohol because of my migraines and I can't really eat chocolate that often because of them either. So I just have this one sad vice, which is my coffee. And oh. I think that the coffee probably causes migraines as well. And I'm like, is there anything that this this illness will not take from me? <laughs>
1: Oh, no, that's the worst. That's very annoying. Uh, my uh, my rheumatoid arthritis uh, gets really flared up if I have really fatty meats. And uh, so occasionally I'll treat myself to like a really nice piece of steak or something like that. And I regret it for like three days afterwards. It, oh, and
2: I, I, see, I know it's so hard to resist though why do our bodies not just let us have nice things why is it so hard i know right <laughs> Yeah, but yeah so that's my next um goal but i'm gonna i'm gonna ease into it uh, slowly i'm gonna just have like three coffees a week and then try and get down to two and then maybe one.
1: Oh my gosh. I I started uh, up on tea about four years ago and, uh, and I, I got to the point where I was probably drinking six or seven cups of tea a day. And, and I think I'm down to two or three now i'll do two caffeinated one decaf in the evening uh and it's just it, it it's that all that caffeine you know it makes you jittery and
2: i i wouldn't know because i think i'm now immune to caffeine because i've drunk so
0: much oh, really?
1: I,
2: I can have a coffee at 11 in the evening and i'll be dead asleep by midnight it's i just don't think it affects me anymore but that's that's bad oh that, that's really, yeah, really that's bad.
1: Not, that's, that's not great that's
2: the sign i need to stop <laughs>
1: That was fantasy author Samantha Shannon. Thanks again to Samantha for coming on to chat. You can find links to her website down in the show notes. You can find me, as always, at brianmcclellan.com. Special thanks to James Sutter for music and Tom Bishop for production. If you'd like to support the podcast, head on over to patreon.com slash pagebreak, or buy my books in ebook, paperback, or audio. Don't forget that my next epic fantasy, In the Shadow of Lightning, is now up for pre-order. You can also get signed copies of my books direct from my website or swag from my Redbubble store. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave a review. Huge thanks to Kyle Anderson, Patrick Hunt, Elijah, and Jennifer and Angela Johnson for their backing on Patreon.